KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 103.9 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hi, I'm Raquel Williams. Coming up on Bridging Philly, child care centers across the country and here in Philadelphia recently participated in A Day Without Child Care. They closed their doors to remind people how integral early child care is to the economy. I spoke with many of them on that day, and you'll hear from them along with our guest, Diane Barber, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Child Care Association. Our newsmaker this week tells you what you need to know about the primary elections. So we're making sure that consistent information is getting out there, but we're letting civic leaders distribute it in the way that makes sense for their communities. Antoinette Lee has this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. It's all coming up on Bridging Philly. Hello, welcome to Bridging Philly. Earlier in the week, child care centers across the country and here in Philadelphia participated in A Day Without Child Care. Many centers closed their doors to remind people how integral early child care is to the economy. COVID truly exposed some of the existing issues, but it also made them worse. Lack of a livable wage, more affordable daycare for parents, and an equitable child care system are just some of the changes child care workers would like to see. Now, there was a rally at City Hall and a community gathering where several of the city's child care center owners gathered, and I did have the opportunity to speak with several of them. Amira works at Kinder Academy. She's continuing her education as she is committed to the work and hopes for better pay. I have my CDA, so I'm going back for my um, associates in ECE, which will help me become a lead teacher, which was my goal in my previous review. So now, of course, when all is said and done, you'd like a livable wage. Are you have any concerns about that? Um, yes and no. I feel like, for me, I wish it was based upon, like a living wage was based upon the your work ethic instead of it being your like background and your, you know, your major and all that and your credentials. Because I feel like that's like, just because you have all these credentials, your bachelors and all that, I feel when it comes down to it, not everybody's capable of doing this job not everybody and it's very hard to admit that to yourself because you try to be humble but then you're like no i like i'm more than that i'm worth a lot more than that i work hard you know and i deserve it so that's really what it is Aliyah logan operates small beginnings early learning center and the learning institute of philadelphia she says investing in her staff is important we have always um, been uh, really adamant about investing in our staff. Um, a lot of times us as owners went without pay or even had um, pay decrease in order to maintain um, quality staff and paying them at a quality wage. Um, so for me to be able to um, come out amongst other people who have those same concerns and kind of um, you know, rally around, you know, quality wages is important because I want everybody to be, you know, paid a decent salary. My staff work really, really hard. They really love their jobs. And it's hard to tell them to stay or to, you know, just wait just a little bit longer. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. And knowing that they're not able to meet their needs. 
so this day is very very important to us we want our staff to be happy in the field but also paid a decent wage at the same time. Do you feel that legislators are hearing your voices and that they're respecting the, the important work that you're doing with these these early minds? I mean this is the time to reach them. I don't think they're hearing us. I think that they hear us when it's time for elections but I don't think that they hear us. I don't think that they see us. I think they look at us like many parents look at us as babysitters and not educators, not as professionals and so um, it's sad because a lot of their children had to come through this the same route. They came through this route. So to, to not value us, you know, it, it, it's hurtful. It's hurtful that we're always the last on a total pole, but we do such great work. She also points to the added requirements that daycare operators have had to meet over the years. What's are required from us have constantly risen. Not only has it increase in the cost of living, but the demands that they have on us, the more trainings that they require us, the more education that they require us, um, the, the benefits that we need to have in place for staff, um, just maintaining the center, all those costs have risen, but the child care benefits have stayed the same. And so they expect us to provide quality, which is pricey, and they only been paying us the same rate and so how do we how do we do that? How do we provide quality? How do we pay quality people but we're still working off of the same minimum wage pay? It, it, it's not it's not possible. Something's going to have to give. And a lot of times it's the children. Um, and a lot of times it's the families. It's the people that we service. That's where 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 the, you know, the decrease is going to come in at. I also spoke with Michelle Faison. She's owner of Precious Angels Learning Academy, along with her husband, Lawrence. They'd like to see more action from lawmakers, and that was one of the main points of a day without child care. I would like for the Congress to please put more money into child care so then I will be able to pay my staff more money. That's more quality life because we do provide quality care for children, and I would like for my workers to have a quality life. Okay. And what about um, your worker retention and turnover? It is a challenge holding on to staff, but I do have a group of women that are very dedicated to educating children that love children, and it's a passion. So that is a benefit for Precious Angels, that the staff loves working with us and we, we're Precious Angels family. Well, the major issue is, is the staffing, you know, because what we're able to pay people is, is just not enough because they have other options to work other places. See, when, it, when the child care industry got to the point where they started requiring teachers to be more educated, so, but the price that they're paying us didn't, you know, match what they're asking these people to do. Like these women are going to school and they racking up college debt, but when they get out of school, they're not making enough to pay the debt back. Makes absolutely no sense. If you want to require them to go to school, get it educated, provide quality care, they need to be paid like professionals. But Because they are. They because are they professionals. Are. This turned to, years ago, it was not like that. We wasn't required to do as much so far as the centers, we didn't have to pay as much. 
but you want us to provide a quality service with the lack of funds and it doesn't work. It's hard to run a business like that. So that's one of our main issues and our main concerns because people, once you, once you start asking people to go get educated, they have other options. Now, if they opt out not to work in childcare and to go work, say, maybe a school district, now we don't have the staffing. And that's the, that's the issue. Chanel Hunter owns Family Circle Academy. She was one of the organizers of the event. She, like many others, decided to close the doors to her daycare in an effort to bring forth awareness to this issue. If first five years of children's life is so important, why don't we value that and provide funding for those first five years? Why do we not make education a primary for those first five years so that we make an impact significantly in the beginning versus waiting until they get to kindergarten? The reason why I chose to close my child care center, first, the first thing I did was I spoke to my parents. I think one of the most important things is to educate your parents, to help them understand the reason why we're doing this. And this is a parent and provider-led opportunity. So once my parents said that they were on board, I decided to close my business and become a part of this movement because I believe that what I'm doing is important. I'm educating the future. We're holding the economy down and we need to be paid as such. Joining me now is Diane Barber. She is executive director of the Pennsylvania Child Care Association. Welcome. Thank you. So, yes, we did get a taste of what things would be like without child care and early learning centers. Of course, that was not fun, but we understand exactly what this was all about. What's the key takeaway from that day? Yeah, actually, we could say that this has been the last two years without child care, um, right? I think that what if anything, yesterday and the last two years have shown us is that how integral childcare is to the success of our economy and the needs of our families to be able to work. So this is in many ways, you know, we've been working on this, this getting this message out for decades. And if we had to say one positive thing came out of COVID, it was bringing that to the forefront. What would you say is the biggest issue surrounding employee retention at daycare centers? I know that was something that a lot of the daycare uh, owners were talking to me about, keeping their employees. This is, a, this is an under-resourced field. Even though we talk about how much families pay and we talk about, you know, the, the cost of childcare exceeding, you know, a year uh, in a public institution. But the truth is that it's people heavy. Like we have to have people in order to do this. Then we have the other fixed costs. And so I think traditionally what we've, what we've relied on are teachers, our educators, our folks that do the heavy lifting every day, figuratively and literally lifting those babies have taken, have absorbed many of the costs um, for what the true cost of care is. So while our electricity goes up, our food costs go up, um, we can't operate without those things. But at the same time, we can't operate without those individuals who care and educate our children every day. I think that the, what the pandemic did is it brought the challenges of, to our, our workforce um, front and center. And people said, we can't do this anymore. It is a, it is a job that it requires diligence. You know, you walk in the door at seven, you're on until you leave at seven o'clock at night. That is straining. I mean, that's uh, emotionally straining, cognitively straining, and then you got the physical strains. And there's few benefits, uh, unfortunately. I mean, our average 
childcare person working in a childcare center here in Pennsylvania makes a less than $11 an hour. Um, you know, some people quote the, the national uh, figure, which is like 13, mm-hmm. but here in PA, it's less than 11. And that's why a day without childcare and some of our other initiatives is trying to bring light to that. We're also working on an initiative and ask to the Pennsylvania General Assembly and the governor's office to increase, um, to invest in our childcare workers, to provide $115 million in this year's budget or in the current or the future budget that would enable every one of them receive at least $2 an hour increase in salary. And it's not one time only. I think that that's the other challenge that we've had a lot of good resources that have come out of COVID through ARPA and some of the other programs, but they're one-time only funding. They don't last. So they've helped sustain some programs. They've been able to provide um, our staff with a little influx in resources, but we have to look at this systematically and how we move forward. A couple of the daycare uh, owners that I spoke with said that they felt their workers should be paid the same as school teachers. Is that something that you agree with? Well, we think about the work that they do and the education that we ask them to have. We, we could also say that our, our K through 12 teachers are, are underpaid for the, the amount of work that they do. But when we compare our K to 12 teachers with um, our children serving zero to five, um, we see significant differences in compensation and benefits. Um, We expect many of them to come into the program with associates and bachelor's degrees. And as they provide, um, and especially when we're looking at the care for preschool age children to, to get them ready for school, we have an expectation that they have the capacity to move, move, um, children forward, um, prepare them for school. And that comes with education and it comes from, from experience and education costs money. We could open up the newspaper any, any day today and talk about the student loan debt. Right. And, um, so, so if you're making less than $11 an hour and you're trying to pay back student loans, I mean, think, think about that. And if our expectation is that you have those degrees and that education, um, it's really hard. And yeah. I don't know how to make it sound that trite. Okay. But it is, yeah. it's truly just really hard. So yes, if our expectation is the same in ter- terms of education experience and credentials, there should be an equitable um, relationship to compensation. Let's go back to COVID for a moment and sure. uh, discuss that. What effects did COVID have on a lot of center operations and have things kind of gotten back on track for most of these uh child care centers? COVID, I think, shed a light on the holes in our system, mm-hmm. right? This is a job that you have to, you have to be present. It's not like you're doing, you can do remote child care, right? So what happened is that um, programs that did open had to put into place extremely strict protocols in order to keep kids safe, in order to keep their staff safe. So, you know, that meant that they actually had to overstaff. So you had someone who was screening children, you know, at the door. Um, Parents weren't allowed past the, past the entrance just to keep COVID out. They had to keep kids in or children in smaller groups so that it was kind of like family, family groups so that we weren't passing germs Mm -hmm. around. When a classroom closed, there was a good chance that the entire program closed and, you know, it could have been closed for two weeks 
or it could have been like you could have come back and then somebody else got it and you were closed again. So this in and out open close stress, not only the teachers in the programs, the program administrators and families who depended on that care. Now what's happening is that, you know, we've, we've, been functioning under these restrictions for so long. And we thought we saw the light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, right before Christmas, it was like, oh yeah, we can take off those masks. We can like run around and play. Cause that was the other thing, like working with young children, how did you keep them separated? Yeah. I mean, children like to play, they need to play with each other. And so that was a challenge. So anyway, we were looking for the start of the new year to be this whole new thing. And then Omicron came. Right. Uh, yeah. And yeah. then, you know, and it was one and I don't know, the last news report, I said there were like five different versions now. So it, it's still it still creates havoc. I mean, it's still, you know, we're probably not closing entire programs, but we still find um, folks having to close um, classrooms. Mm-hmm. There's also there was a new interpretation of some rules in December that required anyone who look any child or an adult that appeared to have COVID um, uh, or tested positive for COVID um, had to have a doctor's note to return to the program. And when you had physicians and practices that were already bombarded with how do I deal with people who actually have it, getting doctor's notes to come back made it extremely challenging. So um, we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot over this time. Um, And we're hoping that things only get better from here. I think our classrooms are not closed because of COVID uh, primarily. They're closed because we don't have staff to staff them. So um, the campaign that I belong to, Start Strong PA, did a survey at at the end of, um, in, in March. And we found of the 900, almost a thousand providers who responded, they had 7,000 openings, um, for staff in their programs. If they had waiting lists of over 32,000 children, they had the space. They just didn't have the people. Wow. We have 6,600 childcare programs here in Pennsylvania. So that was just a thousand of them that responded. Um, so if we kind of multiply that exponentially, yeah. we have a problem. Right. Absolutely. You know, one of the child care center owners that I spoke with uh, said that she doesn't feel like they are appreciated and that she doesn't feel like lawmakers really hear them. And she thinks that they're seen as babysitters. Is this one of the problems? You know, as I said earlier, I think that what COVID has done has shed a light on the importance of early learning childcare um, programs. And we did get response, at least from the federal government. And we did get some response from um, the Pennsylvania General Assembly because they did have some discretionary funding that came through the federal COVID-related funding that they dedicated to childcare. I mean, this was one of their top priorities. However, what we're challenged to do is to commit our state resources to the issue. We were really excited. Um, I think all of us in the field were very excited about President Biden's Build Back Better plan, which, you know, would have helped families. It would have reduced costs for not only low-income families, but middle-income families. There was a component that would have increased staff salaries, and there was a component that would support professional development. It was going to be this big, you know, bill, and we've not seen anything like that. Um, Even 
when our existing primary funding, the child care development block grant was issued, we've never seen the kind of investment. Unfortunately, didn't go our way. Um, we're hoping that there's, there's talk now between, you know, there's some discussions going on. Um, we're hoping that we'll see, we'll see something. But Pennsylvania's investment in childcare with state funds from the general fund um, has not been consistent. Um, and they've used primarily federal funds that they get um, yearly to do any kind of increase that they have. We need substantial investments. Um, we, can't, we can't depend on these one-time only investments. Um, we also need to look at what does it really cost to provide high quality care? And we can't, we can't allow it to just be on the backs of families. Um, it just, right. they can't, they can't afford it. And what happens is if when they can't afford it, they look at alternatives and those alternatives are not necessarily safe. Um, you know, I open up, you know, a newspaper or go online and see a Craigslist, you know, advertisement that says, you know, I need childcare and I need it tomorrow. Who can help me? Freaks me right out for yeah. lack of a better descriptor. Absolutely. Um, well, of course, I, I I absolutely don't feel that child care workers are babysitters. You're not. You did mention that these young minds are being prepared for K through 12. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the benefits uh, and the importance of early learning. Well, I think that the title, right, early learning is really descriptive. So children learn beginning, one would say prior to birth, right? They recognize their family before they're actually delivered to this world. They recognize their, their parents, their words, their, their siblings, they recognize things. And then they come into this world and beginning from day one, they begin to learn. Um, so, so what we're doing in these, in our programs, in our early learning programs is helping to facilitate that, helping to facilitate that learning, supporting that learning, um, having them be prepared. We're preparing them from day one to be successful adults. And when that learning gets interrupted by life, it makes future life more challenging. And we have the research that, that shows us that. Um, we know that brain development, those first five years, those first three years are some of the most important times in children's lives. Um, so what we're here you know, you know, in our childcare programs is our families have to work in order to survive, you know, I mean, so that they can pay the bills and put the food on the table. And, and so what we're here to do is to support them and their children so that they have a safe and engaging and enriching environment um, so that they will ultimately be successful in school and in life. Dan, what would it take to build a better early learning system? And what, what, what does the perfect learning, early learning system look like to you? So the, a perfect early learning center would include that was open to all families and met their needs where they are and where their children are. And in order to do that, we have to have um, experienced and, and educated staff. It has to be affordable. It has to be accessible. It has to be of high quality. Um, so we're talking about staff to child ratios that are light. So here in Pennsylvania, through our certification system, we require only one adult for every four infants. So you can't handle more than that. My niece has twins. She can barely deal with two. But so we're saying, but at a minimum, you have to have one staff for four. So low staff to child ratios, um, engaging families in what the program looks like for, for them. So we're not, we're not dictating um, 
a specific curriculum, but allowing the curriculum to flow with the needs of children and their families. Okay. So then, so that's kind of the program side, right? right? And then we have to invest. Okay. We have a terrible um, investment strategy for young children here in the United States. We need to invest more. We, you know, we're, we're not, you know, we have other countries that are far exceeding their investments in, in young children. Um, We can't, allow the programs that we provide for young children to be dependent on how much or how little we pay our staff. Um, So we need to invest in them too. They have children. I mean, I think that that what I struggle with is when the staff who we depend upon to care and nurture children have to access public benefits in order to care for their own children because of the wages that they earn. Mm -hmm you know, if I had to say it, it's just not fair, right? I mean, it's, it's not fair. It's not equitable. Um, so we need to pay more attention to that. We, as a country, as a commonwealth, we need to pay attention to that and we need to invest. Diane, tell me more about the Pennsylvania Child Care Association and its mission and what kind of support do you offer uh, child care centers in the state? Well, the Pennsylvania Child Care Association is nearly 40 years old. Um, we were founded by um, a group of both, at the time it was the Department of Public Welfare, internal stakeholders, and then external child care providers who were delivering uh, child care through the subsidized child care system. So over the last 40 years, our work has focused ma- mainly on the organizations that provide child care. So we have approximately 1,000 members that operate about 2,300 child care programs throughout the Commonwealth. That includes both uh, center-based programs, so those serving more than 12 children, um, group and f- home-based providers. We also administer with funding from the Department of Human Services the Office of Child Development and Early Learning, the Teach Early Childhood Scholarship Program, which helps support childcare staff that want to go back to school. So they can earn a degree at absolutely almost no cost. And as a component of the TEACH program, they earn a bonus or an increase in salary as they complete what we call contracts. So it's, it's, recognition and reward. Um, Mm -hmm. And we last, even during the height of the pandemic, we were, people continued to go to school. Um, They continued to earn their degrees. And we had over a thousand teach recipients during that time that um, were doing the work um, so that they could be better teachers for our young children. So yeah, so PACA is a statewide membership organization. Okay. And uh, it's near and dear in my heart. I w- I've been connected with PACA um, way before I became the executive director of PACA. Got so, it, got it. Okay. And for those who want to learn more or get involved, how can people contact you? Our website is pacca.org. You can also find us on the on Facebook. And for our members, we also do a closed Facebook um, directors exchange, which allows people to kind of converse about the issues that they're facing every day in running their programs. Somebody asked, are your costs increasing? And um, one of the citations, because we talked about inflation, right? And Mm -hmm. how that's impacting our programs. 
And um, a director up in Allentown said, I used to supplement my monthly, I would supplement my child care and adult feeding program, which is, which is the feeding pro the government feeding program that helps subsidize um, snacks and lunch and breakfast. And she goes, typically I would, in a month, I would subsidize that for about $5,000 a month, which is still a significant amount of money. And she said last month it was $15,000. And that's with knowing that she has at least one closed classroom. So she's serving fewer children and her cost is going up. So this little director's exchange, let people vent, you know, what's what's going on. Um, And then also work together to kind of come up with solutions. And then it helps us because then as advocates, we can go to our, you know, members of the General Assembly, we can go to the administration and say, this is what's happening on the ground. I think that that's what a day without childcare was really saying, this is what's happening. If you, you know, you guys are in Harrisburg. Okay, this is you're in DC. This is what's happening on the ground for families, for children and for the providers and the teaching staff. Diane Barber, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Child Care Association. Once again, you can reach them at PACCA.org. Thanks so much for joining us today on Bridging Philly. Thank you. Before you head to the polls for the upcoming primary elections, make sure you have your toolkit. The group Better Civics has educational materials that contain everything you need to know before you go. Shara Day Howard gets the details from Jen DeVore. As Election Day gets closer and closer, Better Civics, a nonpartisan nonprofit, is filling what President and co-founder Jen DeVore says is a gap in education surrounding civic engagement, and that ultimately affects voter turnout here in Philadelphia. So she and some friends did something about it. Welcome, Jen. Thank you for joining us at Bridging Philly. Oh, thank you so much. All right. So you came up with this idea, Better Civics, because you were inspired to fix what you say was a broken aspect of education and also the voting system. What was the spark here? So uh, Better Civics is based in Philadelphia. Uh, It was co-founded by myself and my friend and uh, voting partner, if you will, Megan Smith, back in the summer of 2020. Prior to that, I was uh, running for city commissioner, the office that oversees all elections. And that campaign in 2019 was an interesting one because it was at the time when when not a lot of people knew what that office was. And really a lot of people didn't know or understand how important Philadelphia in particular uh, voting block is. Uh, We have enough density in Philadelphia where if we increased voter turnout, we could win every state election for Pennsylvania. And so I saw the commissioner's office at the heart of that. But when we were on the campaign trail, we realized that people didn't know what that office was, how their vote was impacted across the state. And so it really became an educational campaign. So in 2019, when my campaign ended and I unfortunately wasn't able to win my seat, Megan and I took our platform in the campaign that I ran and turned it into Better Civics, into this nonprofit. And our goal is to provide easy to understand, accessible information about civic engagement and and voting and deliver that to to Philadelphians. So you say the work that you're doing is revolutionary. In what way? Tell us more. You know, we like to say that we're revolutionizing this work, but really we're doing something that I think is quite obvious and really should be a right of all residents to understand how their government works and how to hold it accountable. So tell us what makes Better Civics different. What are you doing that wasn't being done before? It's not necessarily what people weren't doing, but what people didn't have access to. And that was these these simplistic, easy to understand explanations of things like 
the difference between a state senator and a state representative and how that affects your day to day. We really look at this as adult civic education. Um, you know, we, we think about civic education as something that traditionally has been learned in a classroom that started from elementary school and grade school. But we know that those classes don't exist nearly as far and wide as they did at one point and as they should. And so we're, we're making up for that lost opportunity to, to learn these things. And I think what makes us different and stand out is our approach. We, we make it fun. We use, uh, you know, design and art in, in our presentation uh, and we connect it to pop culture. And then really we just not only explain these things, but then let people have an understanding of how they can apply their learnings and how they can hold their elected officials accountable for their everyday life whether it's on their block or in their neighborhood or across the city and state. And you really double down on the idea that all politics is local. If you want to make big change, you start in your own backyard. A hundred percent. And we we never blame somebody for not voting or not understanding or knowing this stuff. And and we think the term voter apathy is is one that is very unfair because you can't care about something that you don't understand. And how our government works and how civics works, I think it's complicated by design. And so we're trying to break that barrier and bring it back to the people. So what you're saying is an educated voter is really a more effective voter because you know what you're dealing with, you know what you're looking at. Yeah. And the more you question the status quo, right? And I think that's, exactly. that's, that's what, you know, I think some people uh, don't want others to do. And, and that's not fair. So critical thinking and civics, you don't really see that being taught in schools any longer. So really what you're doing is filling that gap. So let's talk about your approach and how your approach really does that. Yeah, yeah. So we try to connect with Philadelphians on a, a realistic basis. Um, you know, unfortunately, the, the, the average reading level in Philadelphia is at the fourth grade. So we make sure that all of our materials um, accommodate that reading level. Um, and we have examples of of civics and and how government works that are applied to our day to day. So one example is, you know, talking to to our neighbors and our constituents. You know, we talk like alley cleanups is a big issue in Philadelphia. Everyone's got, you know, or knows someone that has a back alley that they're short dumping and there's a mattress back there. You can call your state rep and get support from that. And a lot of people don't know that that's the office to call for something like that. And so we give examples of how constituent services should work. Um, and then how Philadelphians can apply that directly to to their block. Um, and then, like I said earlier, too, you know, we make it fun. We make it pop culture. We're very reminiscent of MTV's Rock the Vote. I think that's probably our biggest inspiration in trying to revive that that young and exciting energy around politics, as opposed to the kind of burnt out and overwhelming feeling that we sometimes feel. And I think a lot of people look at voting and look at the process and it can be daunting. So let's talk about your toolkits. And this is making things familiar, fun and more accessible. Yeah. So one of the things that we do um, consistently since we started is pop up election centers. And that's a program that we started um, when uh, the pandemic had first hit and there was all of these changes to the rules about voting. Polling places were being closed and consolidated. Uh, coincidentally, vote by mail was allowed for the first time in the state of Pennsylvania in 2020. Um, and the election date had changed 
at the last minute. So there was a lot of information that needed to get out to people. We couldn't physically be in person as much as we had. What we're able to do, and we've continued doing this since 2020, is we find community events that have absolutely nothing to do with voting. Sometimes they're they're food giveaways, sometimes they're uh, community baby showers. We will show up to block parties and park cleanups. And we bring what we call a pop-up election center. And we have a DJ and we have experts on hand that can answer all of your questions about voting. So if you haven't gotten your vote in mail ballot by now, what do you do? Or you have your mail-in ballot, but you aren't sure where to send it. You know, we'll give instructions for that. Um, you know, there's a lot of nuanced questions that people have. And so we set up this, this help desk, if you will, um, at events, again, that have nothing to do with voting because we feel like those events already have people that are engaged at them. So we want to get people um, involved in the process that maybe normally wouldn't seek those opportunities out. And then the biggest thing that we do is our toolkits. Um, and our toolkits are presentations, social media graphics, discussion guides, and games um, that all have to do with whatever election is coming up. And remember, we vote every six months, so there's always an election coming up. Um, these toolkits are resources that you can basically take off a shelf and deliver to your audience. So we work with church groups, civic associations, block captains, committee peoples, and they can take our resources, our presentations, our social media cards, and use them as they see fit. So we're making sure that consistent information is getting out there, but we're letting civic leaders distribute it in the way that makes sense for their communities. So the pandemic, how were you able to really maneuver around that? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't even know how, how we did what we did. I think Megan and I kind of both went into emergency action, knowing that there was so much information vital to a successful election. Again, referencing the date of the election itself changing, vote by mail being the first time in Pennsylvania's history um, accessible to everybody. Um, and then the polling places uh, locations changing. And, you know, Philadelphia is a city with a vast digital divide, something that was definitely amplified during the pandemic. And we knew that sharing information online wouldn't be enough. And that really was the drive that got better civics up off the ground was knowing that we had to get information into the physical hands of people in a literal pandemic where you could not see, let alone touch somebody. And so we just went into action. And, you know, I think at some point a few months ago, we kind of lifted our head up and said, whoa, we've been doing this for a year and a half. This is amazing. And really a lot of this stemmed from the fact that you're also from Philly. You have a vested interest in all of this. Like we're the audience that we serve. Like I I'm a Philadelphian. I'm somebody that gets angered at our, at our city sometimes. I mean, who doesn't? And uh, I was having trouble finding this information. And I figured if I'm having trouble finding it, many people are too. And so, you know, how do we, how do we bridge that gap? So you make a point of kind of aiming this at everyone, but you say youth, they're the ones that are standing out. How do you attract everyone, but still make it broad enough and poignant enough to be effective? Yeah, it's hard. And it's something that we're still learning and something that's still evolving. Um, you know, how, how do we get this right? And we certainly haven't mastered it yet, but um, you know, what, we do know is that, you know, Philadelphia has kind of this like interesting 
I'm going to use the word cosmic force, where when (laughs) we kind of experience things together as a city, you know, whether it's something exciting like Drumline Elmo, or it's something more challenging, like the specific uh, effects that the pandemic has had on our region uh, in particular. And so, you know, kind of thinking of it as, you know, well, what, what, what is Philadelphia and who are Philadelphians and knowing that, yes, those are very different answers, but united under the same, the same love and passion and grit that we have. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we just try to put it all out there. Um, we definitely skew younger when it comes to our design. Um, you know, art and design is something that's very important to better civics. And we work with a variety of diverse artists to kind of represent uh, different, uh, you know, different elements of, of voting. But um, I'd say, yeah, it's something that we're still learning and, and it's tough, but we think it's worth it. It's it's worth the uh, the uphill battle to to be appealing to everything and to be one for all. So really, you're this one for all, all for one Philadelphia. How do you speak to that in the work that you do? Yeah, well, I think that that's where our partners come in. And the model of Better Civics is not that we're necessarily speaking directly to voters. It's that we're providing the content and the resources so that leaders in these different communities, in these diverse networks, can take the information and then they deliver it in a way that works best for them and their audiences. So that's why we have a variety of resources in our toolkit. We have some social media stuff, but we know not everyone uses social media. We have a presentation that you can either print out or deliver on screen. We have a script, so you don't have to do the research beforehand to deliver a great uh, presentation on what's on the ballot. We've done that hard work. And so we've seen um, our toolkit applied in so many different settings, whether it's you know in those, those basement church meetings uh, sometimes or at uh, civic association events. Um, it, it really is reliant on the messenger and so we just make sure that the messenger has all the facts and then we give it, we give them the creative freedom to deliver it in a way that works best. And you say you want everyone, but you do skew a little bit younger because you want to start as early as possible. That is where we see our most success. I think the enthusiasm that we see from young people around this is really exciting. And, and that is because we have a very strong partnership with another incredible organization called PA Youth Vote. And PA Youth Vote is dedicated to registering every 17 and 18 year old across the Commonwealth as soon as they are eligible um, to vote in in the next election. And so we really rely on them to get the information into the hands of young people so that they're delivering uh, the facts to their school clubs, to their um, their own networks, their social groups. And, and honestly, the, the energy is there. Young people want to know this information. They're angry that it's not as easily accessible as it should be. Um, and they want to know why. And so to be able to provide them with the resources so that they can get this work done is a really fantastic feeling. And I think we see that across the board with, with this Gen Z uh, group, whether it's through political action, climate change, social justice, workers' rights, 
Um, you know, you think about the, um, the Parkland High students that have been organizing against gun control, um, you know, Greta Thornburg, who's been uh, doing climate change on a national level. I mean, those are just two very high profile young uh, organizers. But I think that across the state in Pennsylvania, that's all we can speak of because that's where we work. Uh, we see it pretty rampant. And that's exciting to me. It's like it seems as though the more information you give that group the youth, they can speak as loudly as they feel is necessary. And they don't hold back. How have you seen that in Philadelphia? Yes, absolutely. And and I think that there is um, such a huge opportunity now with social media and with the ability to, uh, to share things online so quickly um, that that's, that's, to me, the biggest difference. I don't necessarily think you can say that any other generation isn't as organized or as uh, active because they don't care. It's a lot of it has to do with the resources that this generation has, and and they're they're using them for the greater good, which is really exciting. So so the way that we make our toolkits is we have a content and uh, research development team, and they spend weeks looking up every single thing you need to know about each election. So for this election, it's everything you need to know about the lieutenant governor, governor, general assembly, so on and so on, and. And we can, we have such a hard time finding this information. I mean, sometimes we're on, you know, Google search result page 15, and we finally find a clear and easy explanation. And I think that needs more attention, how limited this information is publicly. And this is simple stuff. This is the job descriptions of the elected officials that frankly, when we vote, we hire them for these positions and we pay their tax, we pay their salary with our taxes. We like to think of it that way. When you vote, you hire someone to do a job. So why don't we know the job descriptions of our Lieutenant governor, of our governor? Um, That's not fair. And that's what we're trying to change. And this is what you're pointing to when you say this is by design. Yes. Yes. Because I think, you know, like we said earlier, right? The more you know, the more you question and uh, that, that causes change. But we're ready for it. We're ready to bring change and answer those questions. So let's talk about the toolkit. What exactly is in this toolkit? Is it physical? Is it something that someone gets in the mail? How do people uh, get involved? How do people make the most of this? I wish they could get it in the mail. If anyone wants to pay for that and you're listening, please please give me a call. Um, the way that we're able to do it with our limited resources, the toolkit is online. You can go to bettercivics.org. You can click on uh, the link that says toolkits and you know you can see this year's, we have previous year's ones as well for review. The great thing about these toolkits is that they're fairly evergreen, which means once one's created, that next election cycle, when those same offices are back on the ballot, this information is already created and ready to go. Um, It's all nonpartisan, so we don't look at specific candidates or make recommendations on who to vote for, but it's all about what we're voting for and why. So once you go on our website and you download our toolkit, it's very simple. It takes you to a Google Drive folder and there you'll see instructions how to use this toolkit. It lists a number of suggested ways of how to bring the information to your audience. It has sample um, copy if you wanna promote to your audience that the toolkit um, is ready to be delivered, et cetera. And then there's a folder for the presentation that comes along with the script. There's social media graphics, 
um, a discussion guide and it's all there to download and, and it's really just taking it off this virtual shelf. So this isn't about promoting anything or anyone other than educating people for a more informed vote. Yes, 100%. And then our hope is that once people get this basic information, if they want to take a deeper dive, they can and they can make an informed decision. They now know what qualifications to look for in each specific candidate and can ask informed questions and make an informed, confident decision when they vote. So what are your thoughts on what to do going forward? What's that next step? Yeah, I mean, I think a major overlooked issue within voter engagement in Philadelphia is the people that are registered to vote, but choose not to. There's so much emphasis on voter registration and GOTV efforts, which is fantastic. And we shouldn't stop that, especially when we look at our younger generations who are just coming of age to vote. But the reality is, is that Philadelphians have more than a 90% registration rate since 2021. So like we're doing really good on registration. Of course, we always wanna do better, but we're doing pretty good. So I think we need to focus our attention on a different audience. Last May in our primary, there was over 800,000 Philadelphians who were registered to vote but chose not to. And that to me is a huge issue that we need to address. The challenge is, is that's a really hard issue to address because each of those 800,000 people didn't vote for a very different, very personal reason. And so, you know, it, we, we have to figure out how to scale that 15 minute conversation that you may have with your neighbor that convinces them to go to the polls. How do we do that with 800,000 of our neighbors to close that gap, restore people's trust and not just get them to vote, but get them to vote confidently so they understand what they're voting for and why. Thanks for joining us at Bridging Philly, Jen. This was truly an honor. I'm Charity Howard, and that's your newsmaker. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health. KYW's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. This week, we're highlighting Judge Keith Williams II from Delaware County. He's involved with an organization called Men on Mission. They've been bringing together community members, many of them men alumni. They've been helping to mentor and motivate students at William Pidwood High School in Yadin, Delaware County. So I guess you could say he's a judge on a mission. Here's more from our Changemaker of the Week. Judge Williams, welcome to Bridging Philly. First of all, tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to becoming a district judge in Delaware County. I'm from Southwest Philadelphia originally. I uh, grew up there. We left Southwest when I was about 15. And we ended up moving out to Yaden. Uh, and then that period of time, Yaden was, uh, uh, it still is a really beautiful place. It was much different from Southwest Philadelphia and ended up graduating from uh, the local school there, Penguin High School. Uh, went off to Lincoln University, uh, pursued a business administration degree, graduated from Lincoln University in 1987, 
and uh, was recruited to work for a uh, Kellogg sales company as a territory manager. Worked for them for about um, about three years in the D.C. area. Took the LSAT, did well. The uh, uh, couple of schools reached out to me, North Carolina Central University in Durham was one of the schools that reached out and offered some money. So I went down to North Carolina, went to law school, was able to uh, um, secure a JD from NCCU, uh, graduated there in 1993, moved back to the Delaware County area, noticed that there were no uh, attorneys in the area and decided to open up my shop, hung out my shingle, some practice in law every since really. Ten years ago, I uh, decided to run for district judge and was uh, uh, elected. And I've uh, been working in that capacity as a district court judge for about 10 years now. Now, Men on a Mission, it's a fairly new initiative that began just last year and you didn't start it, but you have helped, you know, to grow it and expand it. So tell us about that. The organization was actually started uh, by Dr. Becos, Dr. Eric Becos. And I believe it originated out of a, out of a, uh, a prior scenario where there were a lot of, um, uh, fights and some bad press that the high school was receiving. And so he thought it would be a good idea to offset that a little bit with some positivity. So again, the program is just uh, an opportunity for men who are from the community, people who graduated from Penwood High School to um, show up uh, during the school day, preferably in the morning, to greet the kids, to let them know that we are uh, interested in their well-being, offer some advice, encouragement, and that sort of thing. And uh, that was pretty much it. But I decided that it would be even more impactful if we would be able to set up opportunities for kids to kind of talk to us one-on-one. So uh, I created this uh, scenario after talking with uh, Dr. Becos where students would come into the library for a period of time, uh, interested students who may be people, I'm sorry, students who may be interested in law or business or whatever, they would come in, we would sit down and talk with them on a one-on-one basis. And we always say here on Bridging Philly that it takes a village. I wonder how receptive has students been to this idea of, you know, bringing community members into the schools? They're high school students, and it's been overwhelming. I mean, the kids are very excited. They've had uh, good pointed questions. Uh, they have uh, talked about their aspirations. Um, we've had an open dialogue about how to do it and what, what to look for, what not to look for, what uh, how how you should plan your life accordingly to, you know, uh, your aspirations. And so it's been received well. You know, it's been my experience that, unfortunately, sometimes kids just don't have proper direction. Uh, they, they don't understand the importance of setting goals and, um, and having a plan to achieve these goals. And so uh, if we can just uh, inspire some kids, support them, encourage them, that would be awesome. Um, and we'll, we'll continue to do that. You know, it's not often that kids get to interact with a judge in a positive and I would say somewhat, you know, casual manner like this. So this is quite an opportunity. Have there been any misconceptions or questions that you've addressed for students as to how the judicial system works? You know, sometimes in my position as a judge, I sit on the opposite side of the bench, obviously. And and while it's important for me to uh, administer justice in a fair and equitable way, it's also important, even more important, to try to make sure that we get to our kids early enough to try to prevent them from coming into the courtroom in the first place. So it has to be a balanced approach. So, you know, that's the reason why I'm a part of it. 
Um, uh, and that's the reason why I think it's been so uh, positive and so um, uh, important for our community. Uh, I'll just share with you one story that, that happened while I was on the bench, actually. Uh, I was in truancy court and there was a young man who uh, was getting involved in some problems at school and cutting class and that sort of thing. So I gave him an option. I was like, listen, uh, you have option A is to complete 300 hours of community service. Option B is to tell me or for you to write an essay because during that session, during the uh, the court um, room uh, discussion, he indicated that he may be interested in going to to college. And I told him, well, what I need from you is an essay. And I want you to go into detail about um, how you get there, what school that you're interested in applying to, what the GPA requirement is coming out of undergrad. I'm sorry, coming out of high school. Um, what type of LSAT score you need. And so um, just to get his mind, you know, uh, uh, set and to start to really think about how you go from point A to point B. And to make a long story short, he came back to me after not only uh, applying to college, uh, being accepted, uh, graduated from college. And he said that he was very happy and that I was part of the whole decision-making process. So if we can do things like that, not only on the bench, but also uh, reaching back to kids, then I think, uh, you know, we'll be much better off as a society. And for those who haven't heard of Yaden or don't know much about it, tell us about this community. Uh, right now, I would say a majority, well-intact African-American community. We boast a long history of uh, successful African-Americans. So the Nile Swim Club was the first and only African-American swim club, and it's here right in Yaden. And so the historical organization came out um, last summer and, and actually gave us the accolades. So now that just kind of tells you about Yaden. We also have like a strip of stores and businesses on Church Lane, all African-American owned. And yeah, I think I think the community is just a great community to live in, to work in, to uh, set up shop. And my practice actually has been on Church Lane, my law practice, for over 25 years. Judge Williams, thank you so much for joining us on Bridging Philly, and thank you for what you're doing to bridge your community. That's it for our Philly Rising Changemaker this week. If you would like to learn more about Men on Mission, their website is williampinsd.org slash menonmission. And as always, if you know a Philly Rising Changemaker we should highlight next, please reach out to me. You can find me on Twitter at ARLeeOnAir. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Thanks for joining us on Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And of course, please subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Sharaday Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.